Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. We are the Ambassadors at Large. My name is Joe Genie, based in Washington, D.C. Great to have you with us. This is a podcast about international affairs. Today's topic is going to be about as domestic as this show gets. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, the changing demographic makeup of the United States and what that means for American politics going forward. Uh, and we're going to do this in like 20 minutes because it's such an easy topic that we're just going to blow through it, no problem. And also, my guest today has an appointment immediately after this. Uh, I'm delighted to introduce my good friend Daniel Hernandez. He's a freelance journalist uh, based in Las Vegas. Uh, Dan, welcome to the uh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be here. So, uh, so you were you were what, what sort of set this off was a, a piece or a couple pieces that you wrote uh, about how voters in Vegas were reacting to presidential politics it was particularly leading into the democratic debate in vegas uh a, um, a couple of weeks ago and that sort of got me thinking so i mean historically in the united states iowa and new hampshire were the sort of bellwether for, they were the first states they remain technically the first states um but nevada is sort of it's no coincidence the Democrats held their first debate in Nevada, and now it's one of the first states that, uh, in the primary cycle here in the United States. Um, why is it that Nevada represents the present and future of America in a way that Iowa and New Hampshire do not? Sure. Okay, well, in 2008, uh, Harry Reid made a push to make Nevada one of the early caucus states to move it up because of a couple reasons. Uh, one was there was no western state in the early uh, primaries, and they recognized the uh, increasing importance of, the, of western states in politics just um, because they're sort of – western states are always unique in that they have – you know, they're, they're sort of liberal for some social issues, and they're also – you know they have their their interesting their guns and freedoms and stuff like that that are classic pioneer ideals and then you have um, just a lot of demographic shifts that made it more important to have, to have representation out west. There's a lot of swing states out here: Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico. And so uh, Nevada won that um, argument. Well, Reed won that argument. He convinced both parties to do uh, make Nevada the third to vote. And a large part of that was also the fact that Iowa and New Hampshire are overwhelmingly white. They're over 90 or 95 percent white. But neither state has a big city that, and as uh, you know, America is becoming increasingly urbanized. Um, so Nevada, you know, has Las Vegas, and it has that tension between between rural uh, development and urban priorities and, um, you know, everything, income inequality, uh, insurance, health insurance, um, poverty, the housing crisis. It seemed like everything that could go bad had gone bad in Nevada, had the highest unemployment rate um, or has had the highest, highest unemployment rate for several years. And, you know, it's a big union state. It's uh, got a really struggling public school system. So there's just a ton of... It sounds like America. Exactly. I mean, it's sadly true. Uh, people are like, this represents all the challenges America faces. Uh, it's very diverse. Why don't we uh, Why don't we see who can win here? Um, actually, Nevada has a history of choosing the winners. It had uh, It's predicted every presidential winner um, since except for like 1974 or something uh, for the past like 100 years. Um, 
pretty amazing record there. And including primary winners, uh, you know, it voted for Romney and Obama in 2008. Although I should say that Obama won the delegate count, but he did not win the popular vote. So there was yeah, a- he, he was very clever about that. I, I remember that was the first moment where people realized that his strategy might actually uh, might actually win. But one of the big things is, is you're, you, you guys are. I'm just going to lump you in with all Nevadans now because you've lived there for several years. Um, <laughs> even though you're not actually from, that's long enough. Um, uh, you're. Um, that's really one of the things that striking about Nevada is that. Iowa and New Hampshire, I mean, I lived in Iowa for four years. I went to college there. Iowa is a white state. It is extremely white. And uh, and New Hampshire, very much the same. And uh, American demographics are changing. And because of immigration and because of birth rates and for various reasons, Hispanics and, and other minorities are becoming increasingly prominent in the electoral cycle. And this is one of the one of the things that we're, you know, we're going to briefly cover how the Democrats are, are dealing with changing demographics versus how the Republicans are. Um, but in this, uh, you know, the American Southwest uh, and the American West is sort of the shape of, of things to come. I mean, the, 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 the common number is 2042 is when uh, is, is the number randomly thrown out as the year that whites will no longer be an outright majority in the country. So uh, in that sense, how Nevada, how, how, what happens in Nevada is kind of a signpost for the United States. Yeah, Nevada is projected to be a majority minority by 2020, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's just right around the corner. And Latinos currently represent 20% of the um, voting electorate, but they represent a larger percentage of the state. Actually, Nevada has the largest percentage of undocumented immigrants of any state in the country. And of course, you know, it's a young population. They have more kids. Um, Nevada has a a huge Asian population, black population. So yeah, it's, it does represent the um, changing demographics in America really well. And it manages to be small enough that you can have it be a caucus state and have a, you know, it, it is a, it made sense. Uh, both parties agreed on that. And so actually in 2008, it didn't get a lot of play. It was still kind of a new thing. But now people are thinking of this election cycle as kind of like the coming out party for Nevada in that, um, well, we've had, we're having two primary debates here. The Democrats were here. Republicans are here in December. And actually the last presidential debate is at uh, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Um, in October of 2016, uh, the campus that I work on also as a part-time instructor. So it's uh, getting a lot of play, and um, which is which I think is great. I think uh, people, you know, are starting to recognize that Iowa doesn't, you know, unless you can talk to me about the Santorum and uh, Huckabee administrations, and I don't, I don't think they have a great history of choosing winners anyway. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons why the uh, the Republicans are freaking out about about Trump and and all of the negative things he's saying about Hispanics and Latino voters uh, because demographically you kind of need them in in this election cycle and basically all future election election cycles uh, after this one. And um, so, but, but first let's, let's really quickly do the Democrats going into the democratic debate. uh, You talk to a lot of folks on the street, just, asking them what they thought about the uh, the candidates. Uh, the stereotype, I hate it when how, how pollsters are just able to make blanket statements about entire racial groups and be sort of like 
statistically correct, but but it's something sort of like why why does everyone vote along identity lines? But um, you um, going in the stereotype was basically Bernie Sanders was really popular among white liberal East Coast voters, and that was basically his entire demographic. And basically, he's winning New Hampshire because it's white liberal East Coast voters. And he's when he's competitive in Iowa, although Hillary's still ahead, because that's where those voters go to college. That was the stereotype. Yeah. How did this play out in Nevada? Like when you were talking to people, did did people, you know, like it's a much more diverse state. How? Did, yeah. It's not as neat and tidy as that out here. Thank um, you. I, you know, I, I did talk about the focus of the uh, the article I did for the Guardian before the debate was on the Latino community and. Um, in the process of, of writing about the Latino community, I ended up spending a lot of time with members of the Culinary Union, which is the biggest union in Nevada. It represents all the hotel workers. And, it, you know, it's it's like 55 or 60% Latino. Um, but, you know, it's also, there's, there's also a lot of black and white and Asian members of the, of the union. But anyways, um, in talking to these people, um, I, I saw plenty of Sanders supporters and if there, if I had to kind of, you know, speak to a trend, it just seemed to me like the younger people were more interested in Sanders, and the older people were were more like loyal to Hillary, quote unquote, um, loyal to the Clintons, and you know, so I did see that. I, I talked to some young Latinos who sometimes they didn't want to betray who they were favoring, but it was pretty clear that they were attracted to Sanders and his message, and they were a little bit skeptical of Clinton. Um, and then I would ask them about their parents or their friends and families that say, oh, my dad, you know, he's loyal to Clinton. He thought she, that the Clintons did great before and he would totally vote for her. Can, can we can we talk briefly about the culinary union since you since you mentioned it? Because in general, again, I'm going to use this blanket stereotypes here. In general, unions have historically been kind of hostile to immigration concerns because they see the in, the newcomers as a threat to their entrenched industries and jobs. But that's not going to be true with the culinary union, is it? Because I mean, as I, I love, I don't know if you saw Anthony Bourdain's thing today about about Trump's plan to deport all illegal immigrants, and Bourdain just said every restaurant in America would close. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely, I. Uh... We focus here in Nevada on the culinary union because it's it's got um, so many members. I, don't, I think it's uh, 55,000 members, and they're mostly in Las Vegas and Reno, which um, are the uh, which are the concentrations of all, the most of the population. So they do work as like a, a mobilizing force for whoever they endorse, and they do prioritize immigration reform, even though um, they're all American citizens, or else they wouldn't be able to join the union. They have friends and family who are. A lot of them are immigrants. I think actually the majority of the of the union is is immigrant uh, workers, and they're all naturalized citizens. And they have, but they have friends and family who are undocumented immigrants, and they also just don't like the the treatment, you know, to, for lack of a better way of putting it. And they're so they favor that policy. Um, they're not anti-immigrant, at least not out here. Yeah, and and that's. I mean that's one of the things. So I mean, uh, e- even if e- even if you've you've emigrated legally to the United States, if you're you know if you have you have a Hispanic last name or you look Hispanic or you know you're thought to be Hispanic and you're in uh, 
you know, Vegas, for example, uh, a lot of folks who are anti-immigration are are just going to sort of assume that, and, and, and just by looking at you, that you might be an illegal immigrant and treat you with suspicion or disdain. And so this sort of like spreads out to the entire community, and it's really toxic. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and, and back to the, uh, a slight segue, back to the Democratic campaigns here, it's sort of interesting to see how it's playing out on the ground operation level with... Uh, Clinton has is well aware of the uh, argument that Nevada represents the future of America and Iowa and New Hampshire are sort of this antiquated bellwether uh, states. Uh, and so she's kind of counting on it as a firewall in case Sanders wins in those other two states, which, um, according to those uh, stereotypes that you mentioned, favor his um, demographics. They're white. They're pretty well educated. They're middle class, upper class. Um, more so than Nevada. And so she's also been in Nevada for a long time. Um, you know, she campaigned here in 2008 pretty hard. Um, Bill Clinton, you know, has history here. So they, early on, like in April, they hired all of the former uh, Obama, Harry Reid, Hillary Clinton campaign teams, uh, people with hist- long histories of running elections in the state. They got like this very like smart team. Uh, it's a big operation. And they've been out for a long time, like canvassing, uh, rounding up potential volunteers, uh, doing phone banks. They've, they're really well organized, and it's going to be very difficult to to beat her here. Um, that said, like I, I noticed that the Bernie Sanders supporters had a lot more energy, and although he really is just now getting started, like very late in the game, just uh, actually just opened an office. This week, or might even not be till tomorrow or something, but he's having he's basically kicking off everything now, and um, yeah. So the only way he can kind of catch up is that was kind of the, the one of the, the thesis of my article was if he was if he could get the culinary union's endorsement, which is very possible. Um, they endorse Obama. They have a little bit of a history of just. They have some tension, uh, let's just put it that way, with, with Clinton. They were very angry when, when the Clinton Union endorsed Obama, the Clintons were. And they actually complained about some of the tactics they were using as far as, like, busing people in. And since the polling uh, caucuses were, were in um, casinos, they complained about that because the Clinton Union has workers in casinos. Nice. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so... So, by the way, caucuses are wildly undemocratic. By the way, but but um, having taken part in, in an Iowa one, it's ridiculous that 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 you have to sort of like publicly stand in like a group and say, you know, this is who I vote. Like this would only work in in a relatively not populous state. Uh, in you know, and in a country where there's no chance you'll get shot for supporting the wrong, you know, I've got I've got friends who are working in in countries where you just you don't want him even knowing that you voted in some countries. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> um, but but yeah, no. So so briefly, the other thing that I, I that struck me about your article was, you know, for me again, sitting in D.C., Trump is somewhere between hilarious and like politically interesting. Like he's hilarious because. It's just such great schadenfreude for the the vacuous political culture we have. Like him making grandiose statements to me is no different than all the other vacuous statements that I hear in political debates. It's just that he's an entertainer. So it, like it's just, you know, he's blowing the roof off the thing and, and just exposing how stupid it is. And I love that. But, but also he's politically interesting because he kind of melds this 
to some extent, uh, this sort of UK independence party or like European nationalist party where it's sort of like, we want to keep the social safety net, unlike a lot of Republicans. We just don't want to share it with anybody. Uh, and them foreigners have to go. That that sort of thing. But so for me, he's somewhere between hilarious and interesting. And terrifying. It's, <laughs> exactly. For, for, for like, you know, if you're a Latino voter in Nevada, Donald Trump is not funny. No. It's, it's, uh, it's really emotional for a lot of people here because, uh, well, you know, all over the country, all immigrants that have spent their whole entire lives kind of overcoming this um, stigma of the other and, uh, you know, battling these like microaggressions about them not being American or whatever. Um, now you have someone, you know, straight up telling the world that they're rapists and criminals. Uh, there are people out there that are cynical and dumb enough to act on this kind of rhetoric. And uh, you might've noticed that story that happened in Boston where there was a homeless and Hispanic man, a homeless man who was beaten up on the street, assaulted by some thugs. And these, these, these guys, these white guys said that, you know, Donald Trump's right. You know, we got to get rid of these people. And so, you know, there's some really creepy stuff going on, um, in the, in his support unit. There was that big story in the New Yorker about how white supremacists have picked up on Trump, uh, as their kind of like their candidate. And it's, it's weird. It's very, very troubling. And yeah, I, I, mean, he's I get you. There's yeah. a little bit of Schadenfreude where you're like, "Oh, this is funny." You know, the gops falling apart, but it's just not good to have us digesting this kind of these words, whether or not most people buy into it or believe it's a joke. It's just, it's just very bad. <laughs> yeah. Now there is an element. I mean. I've got to make a, a football analogy here. Like, remember when the, the, the Broncos made the Super Bowl and you're trying to decide, like, who you want to play out of the NFC Championship game? You're Dan, Dan for, for our listeners, Dan is a huge Broncos fan. Um, there's there's like the Seahawks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. So it's sort of like, but, but like, imagine because almost any Republican administration is going to be worse for for immigration issues then uh and again not to assume that that hispanic voters are voting along a single issue line um but uh but almost any gop administration is going to be worse than a democratic one on this issue and so isn't there a bit where it's sort of like you like if if you like you you have you sort of have to root for trump to do well in order to torpedo the republicans chances because imagine if they get blown out in this election like imagine if Basically, anyone besides Rubio wins the nomination, which means that the Republicans get annihilated in in in, in November uh, next year. Uh, doesn't that mean that they that you sort of have to expunge this stuff from the party discourse? Like, uh, isn't it like in the long term it's strategically good, even if in the short term it's bad to have this demagogue going up, whipping up and an, you know anti-immigration sentiment? Yeah, I could see that argument. Like in the long term, this could be an important part of them kind of exercising these beliefs and these um, and this naivete that they can win this way. Uh, absolutely, and I, I think that if someone like Trump wins, they won't just get annihilated in the presidential election. There could be huge down ticket ramifications for congressmen and senators you know, governors, um, I, I, the Democrats have to be rooting for that to happen. Uh, that, that sort of leads me though, to my, my last point. Cause I, I know you have to go soon. Um, I'm a little concerned about where this goes in the long term because I study a lot of international 
affairs issues with sort of post-conflict and very fragile states. And one of the things that I see is that basically it's never a good thing if everyone's voting along ethnic lines or, or racial lines. If your election is a census, that's bad. And in America, we haven't sort of historically had that in general. I mean, African-Americans have generally supported the Democratic Party ever since you know the Civil Rights Act uh, pretty much overwhelmingly, I think 97% in the last election or something thereabouts. 90th um, percentile, yeah. Yeah. But, but, uh, but other racial groups, it wasn't so cut and dried. Uh, and it was basically a, a battle over sort of the ideological views of the party on, on sort of economic issues and social issues and that kind of thing, foreign policy. Um, I, I'm a little afraid that, that, the, the rhetoric out of some of the Republicans and, and the, the kind of anti-immigrant sentiment by a, a, a sort of demographically endangered dominant group has gotten so bad that we're going to basically have the Republicans in a, a, an election cycle or two being the white party and the Democrats being the everybody else party. Yeah. And that's not good for the republic not at all it's been that way a little bit for uh i mean to an extent it's getting worse but it's been that way for a couple election cycles at least uh i have a friend from florida who told me that um like you know and among her circle of people like especially white guys they tend to say like they have to vote republican because it's just like it's almost like that sports thing it's like that's my team you know and it's like a racial thing it's straight up you know um so there is uh for a large segment of the working class white population there is this sort of assumption that you have to vote republican because the blacks vote for the democrats or something like that and the hispanics lean Democrat. Uh, it's sad. I, you know, a part of it has to do with the fact that the, the economic disparity between the minority communities and the white community and the opportunities that are, that, you know, Democrats typically fight for the egalitarian kind of system and Republicans don't. And so this is sort of just a response to that kind of inequality, but um, in, in the sense that there are a, a huge segment of the, of the working class white population that votes for the Republican Party, there's, there, you know, there is that, that they have a certain resentment about um, Hispanics taking their jobs and they, you know, invading their communities and stuff. And so there is um, a little bit of a, the ethnic kind of tension that's spurring this, like, this vote, which isn't necessarily in their own interest, but it's still what they feel like they're supposed to do as a reaction to, yeah, like what you said, this like this this kind of racial breakdown that we're seeing. Yeah, and and the ultimate, I mean, like we talked, uh, we, I mentioned twenty forty two at the beginning. I mean, I don't want to overstate the case here, but uh, this is how civil wars happen. Like when a country's demography changes. Uh, has this degree of upheaval. I mean, granted, it's over a couple of generations and America's a little different because we have this sort of individual culture where uh, we're a nation of immigrants. There's a whole lot of reasons we're wealthy, um, but, uh, or at least some of us are. Um, but, it actually um, kind of reminds me of uh, the civil, actual American Civil War a little bit. And uh, Mark Twain talked a about this in a couple of his, of his essays and novels that the... Um, 
you know, the, the poor white population of the South fought to defend slavery when slavery was part of the reason why they were so poor, you know. Um, they, the system disenfranchised them, too, because they were, there was a free labor uh there that they, they so they, they didn't have much opportunity and then so it was sort of out of their interest to support slavery but they just felt like they had to do it because it was their team it was what they were told they were supposed to do by the um the demagogic uh, power brokers there you know yeah. Uh, yeah and and the other thing i mean when when you get to down to the end of it what this does is it basically makes people other people from different groups, a demographic threat to your 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 polity, and so it it encourages groups to start doing things like disenfranchising voters or at the extremes, uh, ethnically cleansing them. <laughs> if if you're going to go like the, the the Balkans route, but you you don't want to be a minority in you know in, in a democracy because then you'll get outvoted if, if it's gonna if people are voting along identity based lines. And I think honestly that's one of the reasons why you've seen so many Republicans. Uh, I mean everybody redistricts, but the Republicans went through this particularly. Uh, strong redistricting thing to to favor their uh, their voters after the twenty after winning the twenty ten election right before the you know the year of the census and uh, and I, I think you see the whole thing about like voter ID laws and attempting to you know make sure that there's the the non existent threat of voter fraud uh, is not a thing I mean those have the effect of disenfranchising groups and intimidating groups that and making it more difficult for groups that Republicans view as demographically threatening from actually voting. And that's kind of a natural outgrowth of this. Well, I'm going to win over people who you tried to, to stop from voting at one point, you know, and there was, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of, you know, prominent Republicans complaining that they're, you know, w- w- between Trump's rhetoric and these other kind of shifty policies about voter ID, uh, you know, rules that they're, they're threatening their chances to ever kind of evolve into a diverse party. When the Republicans come to town, I'm going to have to to ask you to come back on again and see how how uh, how they react to the various different uh, Republican candidates, however many of them remain uh, from that sort of like Hunger Games style. Um, what did what did Ted Cruz call it? A cage match? I was like, it should be a cage match. That would be more that would be more entertaining more than the like actual a Royal thing. Rumble because that's where you have like, <laughs> exactly. They should have a, they should have a, just throw whoever's yeah. still in the ring at the end wins. Yeah, you, you, remember the one with the the ladder where you had to, you know, everyone tried to climb the ladder and oh, like the belt yeah. was at the top of the ladder and yeah. they would like pull each other down and body slam each other. That was like the well, yeah, I guess that was called the cage match, but now cage match is sort of associated with the UFC octagon cage. Yeah, well, I'm dating myself. Both of us are for for referencing like '90s world wrestling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, but yeah, Dan, uh, Daniel Hernandez, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know you have to go to another event. Um, do you, uh, where can uh, where can our listeners find you on the internet? They can find me at Daniel Gene G E N E Gene uh, at Daniel Gene on Twitter, where um, I usually post my stories for the places that I write them: The Guardian, Courts, 
um, Desert Companion, the local monthly magazine here. All right, that sounds great. We will uh, uh, we will link to that on the uh, the actual page uh, when uh, when we post this uh, this episode. Uh, once again, you're listening to the Ambassadors at Large. You can find us on iTunes by by uh, uh, searching in the iTunes Store for Ambassadors at Large. You can download the podcast, subscribe to it for free, uh, leave us a five star review, or or if you thought it was like a, like an okay episode, leave us a four star review. That's still cool. Uh, any kind of review at all helps uh, raise the publicity of the podcast. You can also find uh, the show and the associated blog and all of my research papers, my music, etc., so on and so forth, uh, on my website at Joe com. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I.com and the, the podcast itself, joegenie.com slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back uh, with another episode uh, pretty soon. Uh, it'll be about democratic politics again, just not America's. Uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.